Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're catching up on some Native headlines today. We'll explore a rise in COVID, influenza, and RSV cases that concerns medical experts. In Hawaii, state officials are preparing for disaster with the eruption of Mauna Loa. At the same time, Hawaiians are welcoming a sacred event. And a Denver Native-focused charter school is facing potential closure. We'll hear more about these subjects after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Trust for Public Land, or TPL, has announced a pilot program to bring green community schoolyards to tribal communities nationwide. Schools in Idaho, Arizona, Wisconsin, Montana, and New Mexico are taking part, as well as three South Dakota communities. South Dakota Public Broadcasting's C.J. Keene has more. The program is a joint effort between the TPL and Bureau of Indian Education. It was announced at the recent White House Tribal Nations Summit. Danielle Dank is the TPL's Community Schoolyards Initiative Director. She says these spaces are valuable for many reasons. It just really makes a three-dimensional learning environment for students. So a wonderful place for, you know, teachers and school staff to go outside and, you know, decompress a bit. And then for the community, um, these are open more than not. They're open to the community after hours, which means that they provide uh, all the benefits that a park would provide. Dank says TPL will take a back seat in the design process. Our role is to bring our process, but not to be the lead locally. We really are looking to work with tribal and indigenous designers, organizers, folks who would be aligned with this kind of process to be the local lead. One South Dakota school involved in the program is the Crazy Horse School in Juan Blee. Superintendent Margot Heinert says experiential education is important. Educationally, I really support any time we can do some hands-on learning activities. I think our kids learn a lot better that way. We are working on an elementary playground, but we wanted something more educational-oriented for older kids. And so when that phone call was made and I got in on a conference call with them, it just fit our schedule perfectly. Other South Dakota schools involved in the program are the Pine Ridge School and the Rock Creek Grant School in Bullhead. For National Native News in Rapid City, I'm CJ Keene. A Bozeman-based nonprofit announced Wednesday that it has transferred dozens of bison to tribal herds in Montana and Washington State. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton reports. In recent weeks, American Prairie transferred 45 bison to the Rocky Boyd Reservation and to the Kalispell Tribe in Cusick, Washington. The Rocky Boy herd was first established last year with help from both the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes and American Prairie. The Rocky Boy herd received 10 bison this year to strengthen the herd. The tribe plans to use the bison for, quote, food, shelter, clothing, and cultural education. American Prairie provides bison to tribal herds every year and has sent 350 animals to tribes since 2005. The organization says all animals were tested for disease and received a clean bill of health. American Prairie has been working to build a 3.2 million acre reserve for bison and other wildlife in north central Montana. 
Some ranchers and state Republican politicians have pushed back against the nonprofit's efforts, in part due to their concerns about bison spreading disease to cattle. For National Native News, I'm Aaron Bolton. This week, the U.S. Interior Department's Advisory Committee on Reconciliation and Place Names is meeting for the first time. Interior Secretary Deb Holland says the committee will accelerate an important process to reconcile derogatory place names. This fall, the department announced the removal of the SQ word, a derogatory term against indigenous women from about 650 geographic features. Members of the committee are discussing several topics, identifying derogatory names and developing recommendations. The meeting continues Thursday. The public can attend virtually. More information can be found on the National Park Service's website at nps.gov. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Make sure your holiday checklist includes avoiding the latest holiday scams. Scammers count on you being too busy and distracted to pay attention, so visit aarp.org slash holiday scams to get up-to-date tips on the latest scams. AARP supports this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're catching up with some topics that affect Native people that showed up in the news recently that you may or may not have noticed. We'll hear more about the significance of the eruption of Mauna Loa in Hawaii. We'll also hear about staff, parents, and students who are trying to save a Native-focused charter school in Denver that the school district aims to close. But up first, we'll get an update about a surge in viral infections that medical experts are calling a triple-demic. There's a wave of flu, COVID, and a respiratory virus all at the same time. If you want to comment on any of these topics, give us a call. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Springville, New York, is Dean Seneca. He's the CEO of Seneca Scientific Solutions Plus, and he's Seneca. Dean, welcome back to Native America Calling. Hey, thanks for having me. Dean, here we go, uh, heading into year four of the COVID pandemic, and we've now been through three fall and winter seasons where COVID and flu stats rose. Anything different to expect for this fall and upcoming winter season? Well, uh, just like you're saying, the the triple uh, endemic is, is here, and you know, for the first time, we're seeing uh, a significant rise in RSV flu and COVID nineteen cases. And they're all rising together, and they're rising at a very rapid rate, like literally almost parallel to the uh, y-axis. Um, you know, every Friday, CDC uh, upstates their influenza-like illnesses, and that data includes, you know, um, stuff like a fever, cough, and sore throat, and they include the flu and RSV and COVID-19 uh, information. And right now, the way the data looks, it's a general indication of the climate and respiratory health of the United States. 
And I'm going to be honest with you, we have a lot of sick people in the U.S. right now, and especially in our tribal communities. Um, RSV is still very high, and we're hoping that it's peaking right now. But flu cases are increasing and increasing fast. Uh, flu hospitalizations uh, are, are lagged, you know, because of COVID-19, but increasing. And, you know, the flu outbreaks typically starts in schools, hitting healthy children, and then the virus takes time to get to older adults. So we are expecting hospitalizations to continue to rise in the weeks to come. You know, but okay. for the first time during the pandemic, flu hospitalizations overtook COVID-19. And, um, you know, this is something that's, you know, alarming to us as epidemiologists, you know. This may be a one-time occurrence, but it's definitely something to keep an eye on. Okay. Um, and, and as COVID-19 um, numbers are, are getting uh, slowly, well, not slowly, fastly increasing. Dean, what sounds so concerning about what you're telling us is, uh, so at this point, so many of us have had COVID at least once, and even people that didn't get drastically sick, you hear these really, really scary stories about going on from COVID, long COVID symptoms, or just having an overall compromised respiratory system. And is there any indication that uh, as Americans, uh, so many of us have a compromised respiratory or immune system, and that could be contributing to this up upsurge in, in these cases? Well, what we were hoping is that we, you know, throughout the rest of the globe, right, and especially in Europe, there have been COVID surges. And we haven't really seen one, and we haven't seen one variant take off in the United States until now. And what we were hoping is that through vaccinations, excuse me, and, you know, people being infected, we've developed an immunity wall. And we were hoping that that would be enough to, you know, prevent COVID from taking its surge. Um, but, you know, um, the big reason that we're seeing this COVID-19 uptake is that we only have like one in three adults um, who are boosted for the COVID-19 vaccination. And, you know, to me, uh, I don't want to say this is a total public health failure, but, you know, we have a lot of work to do to get people protected here. And vaccination is still by far our best method to do so. Um, you know, that on top of, you know, this could be the worst flu season we've ever seen since we've been collecting this data. I mean, it really is bad. Um, and then the other thing that we're also watching is that SARS, uh, that COVID-19 is rapidly increasing in wastewater, uh, which is definitely an indicator that we're going to see uh, more of this virus. Well, this is so uh, just really alarming. And one in three adults in the U.S., you report, uh, have been boosted. So two-thirds of American adults have not gotten the latest booster. And where are we at uh, on that in terms of, I, I know we've talked about this before, like are, are we still in that phase about every six months we should be going in and getting the latest boost? Yes. Um, and here's the thing, you know, the re most recent data that just came out, I just read a report yesterday, that um, the, the longer time that you wait and getting boosted, the better it is for your immunity. You know, so if you're getting your vaccination, you get boosted right away. You know, it's always good to wait, uh, you know, um, if you can wait 12 weeks before you get your boost boosted. We're showing that, that when you have some time in between boosts, 
um, it definitely improves your overall immunity. But there's another thing that we have to consider, and that is Thanksgiving was just a week and a half ago. And because of it, you know, many of our social networks expanded, you know, providing, you know, our families coming together, together and this provided new opportunities for viruses to spread. And, you know, for COVID-19, it takes about two weeks for the epi, for us epi people to see the impact of the holidays. And so this recent uptick in COVID and other viruses could easily be explained by, you know, what's called the Thanksgiving effect. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but here's the other thing, too. You know, in other countries that don't celebrate Thanksgiving, we're also seeing, seeing an uptake um, in COVID-19. Now, this is, this is uh, you know, we have over 500 uh, variants of COVID-19 now. And so, you know, uh, the best protection is the multivariant uh, vaccine that we have. Um, it may not protect against a variant that you're uh, that you may be impacted with, but let me tell you, it is definitely helping with your health because what it does is it will keep you out of the hospital. It will keep you from getting severely sick, and it will have some protection on you transmitting the virus to others. So, you know, um, this this triple endemic is like no other. You know, we really haven't seen anything like this, so we don't know how long this will last or how bad it will get. I'm be honest with you. Um, okay. especially from everything that I'm reading. Uh, I'm, I'm really concerned right now for the hospitalization system, uh, kids under five and adults over 65 because they're at the highest risk. Um, you know, uh, the CDC director um, uh, recently said that um, um, she, she pointed to the fact that, you know, um, the hospitalizations, are, are increasing at an ever high, uh, at a huge rate, and um, that we definitely should be concerned um, that that uh, hospitalizations are the highest that we've seen in over a decade. That's exactly what she said. So, okay. you know, there's a lot we can do, um, and we still need to do. And I know that rules and regulations and politics plays into this, unfortunately. But, you know, mask, we can mask, you know, and, and be sensible when you mask. You know, if you're going to go into a place where there's a lot of people, you might want to consider wearing a mask, especially if you have pre-existing, uh, pre-existing conditions in order to get uh, an illness or sick. Test before you see loved ones, you know. Get that air flowing in, in, in indoor facilities. You know, that really has made an impact because now we know with COVID, it's not only the droplet, but it's an aerosol kind of infection, right? So, that steady air can infect others, but if you get the air moving in cold spaces, that really makes an impact. And stay home if you're sick. Okay. Um, well, so, you know, the, you know, I'm sorry, so going back to the masks, uh, you know, where I live and, and I traveled a little bit last week and I just see so few people wearing masks anymore at this point. It just seems like people are just really over them. Um, what do you have to tell people who just say, hey, look, I'm just I'm done with the masks. I'm done with the social distancing. I just want to get back to normal. I haven't gotten deathly ill. Most of the people I know have been OK. What's the response? The pandemic is not over. I know a lot of people like to think it. it's over. We've had our politicians indicate it's over. We even had, you know, uh, the president make uh a comment that the pandemic is over, and I think people really want to get back to normal, but guess what? It's not. 
Okay. It's and not, if you, and, this, and I'm sorry, Dean, and even if you've had a vaccine, even if you've been boosted, uh, is it still smart to wear a mask? Yes, it is. It's extremely protective. Remember, if you've been boosted with the uh, most recent vaccine, the multivariant vax, I mean, we're showing, studies shown it's up, up to 50% protective. So it's 50% protective, uh, protecting you, you know, um, that's pretty high when it comes to vaccinations, but it's not 100%. So doing preventive efforts like wearing a mask, safe social distancing, washing your hands, which, you know, we've kind of moved away from, you know, these things really make a, uh, an impact in protecting public health. Okay, so 50% uh, efficacy with uh, the vaccines, um, still be have that guard up, uh, hang on to that mask. Uh, and, and then the other thing I think, which is making it challenging for people is, is having to get boosted so frequently every six months, it's just easy to overlook that. So I know in the past, there've been talks about uh, having a vaccine that, that has a longer uh, span. It doesn't, you don't have to get consistently boosted every six months or perhaps even something more permanent. Is that still uh, possibly in the works? Well, <clears throat> well, this is what we're finding out. And I'm gonna try to explain this as easy as I can. So as COVID-19 is creating all these mutations, right? It's okay. creating like this 500 mutations, right? Right. So Dean, I'm, so, I'm sorry, it. Dean, we're, we're going to have to take a break. I'm so sorry. So sorry, we're going to take a break. But when we come back, we're, we're going to have you continue on this and explain uh, the latest on, on the vaccines and uh, how long they last. So folks, uh, interesting conversation talking about COVID today, 1-800-996-2848. Cedar is an important component for many tribes. The tall evergreens in the Pacific Northwest are made into totems, canoes, and clothing. And in many other places, the fragrant leaves are used in food, medicine, and ceremonies. On the next Native America Calling, we'll talk about the cultural significance and conservation of cedar. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're focusing on several Native news items today that people are talking about. If you have comments on the future of the American Indian Academy of Denver or the volcanic eruption at Mauna Loa in Hawaii, call in right now, 1-800-996-2848. That number is also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Speaking with public health expert Dean Seneca, who warns that the pandemic is not over. And Dean, before break, you were providing some more information on the current boosters and how long they last. Please continue. Yeah, thanks. So um, what I was uh, uh, attempting to explain, I'm trying to make it simple. So we have over 500 variants uh, circulating of COVID-19 throughout the entire globe. And what we are seeing more of are like sex, second generation subvariants, right? And they're popping up independently as well. And this 
suggests that we may finally be seeing a ladder-like evolution pattern. And this is a great thing, right? So then we could start predicting where this virus may go and, you know, what it may, what it may mutate to, right? Just like we do with the flu and other coronaviruses. So when we see this pattern, then we're able to make predictions and then we're able to develop stronger vaccinations in order to develop to address the patterns that we're seeing emerging at the time. So coronavirus could turn into, the strategy for coronavirus could ter- simply turn into how we try to address the flu. You know, trying to predict a, a, the flu, the dominant flu variant for that season, and then matching that up with a, a strong uh, vaccine um, uh, remedy for, to address that variant. So, that's what we're seeing right now, and that that's a good sign. Okay, okay. Uh, in in terms of uh, what you're seeing throughout Native America, how are our communities holding up? Are we seeing surges in in cases of COVID and these other respiratory illnesses that are uh, out of proportion with the rest of the population? And also, I'm curious: are, are Native people more likely or less likely to be fully boosted at this point? Um, no, and actually, that we're not. Um, you know, we're seeing in many tribal communities throughout the country, you know, and again, we don't have the most updated surveillance. This is a lot through the Moccasin Telegraph. Um, we're seeing a lot of uptake in COVID-19 cases. Um, we still have, you know, not as many people vaccinated as being portrayed in many of the media and um, social media outlets. Many of our tribal communities are not fully vaccinated. Um, and, you know, some of our tribal communities, um, you know, are not getting their boosters. And to be honest with you, I know many, many of our tribal communities have really given up on a lot of the protective measures like wearing a mask, say social distancing and washing your hands and doing the smart thing uh, when you're in the tribal community, especially at social uh, events and gatherings. So, you know, we, we need to get we need to get back on board with this and, and we need to, you know, protect uh, one another and get back to protecting our elders, uh, which is the most precious uh, resource in our tribal communities. Mm, okay. And tell us a little bit more about this RSV. Uh, what is it exactly? And uh, how serious is it in terms of just the impact that it takes on, on health and is it deadly? Um, it, it can be. It's a respiratory syndactyl virus, right? Primarily impacts uh, children. Um, uh, it, it, it's causing a lot of um, severe illnesses among our, our children and many of our communities. Um, you know, the, the trick with RSV is that we don't have a vaccination for it. So we have to treat symptoms like if we were treating the flu. And um, it it definitely, it can be deadly. You know, we uh, have seen some deaths of RSV throughout the country, and we've seen some deaths of RSV throughout Indian country. So it is definitely something to take serious. And right now this RSV is what's, you know, um, uh, overrunning our pediatric centers and our pediatric hospitals and, um, you know, really causing havoc among our children. 
Okay. Well, Dean, thank you for all this timely information. And, and can you stay with us in case we get some callers uh, with some more specific questions on, on some of these illnesses that are, are spiking right now? Sure, I'd be glad to. Okay, thank you so much, Dean. And uh, let's move on to our next guest now. Another topic joining us from Denver, Colorado is Dr. Terry Bisonette. She's the founder and head of the American Indian Academy of Denver, and she's Geno Zekauning Anishinaabe. Terry, welcome to Native America Calling. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolutely, Terry. And uh, the American Indian Academy of Denver, this is a charter school, and recently, the Denver School Board met to discuss the future of your school. What's going on here? Are, are they contemplating closing the school? Um, first, Terry Bissonette, Indigenous Cosmology, Conning and Dojaba, Makwato Dem. Hello, my name is Terry Bissonette. I am the founder and head of school of American Indian Academy of Denver. Um, we opened during the pandemic um, back in 2020. We opened with full remote uh, with grades six, seven, and eight. Um, we're currently in our third year of operation, and we um, we serve students in grades 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, um, and we're hoping to build out to a full high school, so we'll be middle school and high school. Um, we had, you know, opening a school uh, during a pandemic uh, was definitely not probably the recommended course of action. It was um, as difficult as the, as the 2020 school year was, uh, last year was even more difficult for us, uh, just being a new school. Um, the mental health crisis that um, many of our students, um, really across the country, but many of our students were experiencing and also uh, many adults were experiencing was really tough for us to, um, to handle. We just didn't have the, the structures and the routines, the, that pre-pandemic school culture to kind of fall back on. And so, um, like many schools, we had we had a really rough year um, trying to address um, those those mental health needs, as well as um, having a pretty significant staff turnover. We did lose um, a, a pretty sizable number of students last year, and um, were really unable. We've only ever had one normal recruiting season, and. Um, for those of you, Denver has a very competitive school choice process. Uh, Denver Public Schools is nationally known for their uh, their uh, wide range of school models, and so um, you know schools find themselves competing over a, a, a smaller number of students. And of course, um, as you know, Native American population here in Denver, um, we have the smallest ethnic population um, in um, in Denver Public Schools. So we're we're competing with even a smaller number, um, and also our population is spread out across the Denver metro area, so um, so it makes it even more challenging for us. Um, Denver Public Schools is concerned about our us being under-enrolled because, of course, that's directly tied to finances, um, and so they started applying pressure um, in September or October, really, um, you know, telling our board that we needed to um, prepare ourselves to like relinquish our charter um, at the end of the school year, and um, and really we're we're threatening to to have us close down in December, and okay. so if if we weren't willing to relinquish the the charter, so that's really what we've been dealing with this fall has been a tremendous amount of pressure from Denver Public Schools. So under-enrolled, um, I mean, what, what kind of numbers are we talking about here, Terry? Are you fewer than 50% of where you should be? Well, so 
you know, when you when you fill out a charter application, um, it, this is before you even know students or anything like that. They most authorizers require you to show that you can balance a budget with just taxpayer funds. So they're really somewhat arbitrary numbers because, of course, you're not. It's not realistic. You're you're trying to pre- kind of predict the future. Um, so the numbers that we uh, had, these are pre-pandemic numbers in our application, we should be at 208 students, um, and we are currently at 134. So the Denver Public Schools had projected us to be at 152. Um, so in our mind, we're 18 students uh, below where we we're supposed to be, which is at 152. But DPS often um, in their kind of reporting, they cite out those pre-pandemic application numbers um, saying that we're closer to 50 percent below where we should be when um, that's really not the case since they projected us to be at 152. Okay, so you have it sounds like about a month to to get these numbers up. Is that correct? What what happens if if uh, enrollment does not increase in the near future? Um, well, that's, that's something that, you know, we had, uh, we had a significant, I think, the, I think Denver Public Schools was surprised at the passion and the dedication that many of our families have uh, regarding the, the future of the school. Um, I think, you know, they were really viewing us as, um, you know, as often as the case with our population, kind of like, well, they're small and, and we can just steamroll them and kind of bully them into uh, whatever it is that we want them to do. And so I think that they were surprised at the number of um, parents and students that came to speak in front of the school board. We also had a public rally um, on November 29th, which is the anniversary of the Sand Creek Massacre. Um, We had tribal officials from Northern Cheyenne here in town um, to speak on our behalf and then um, several local elected officials as well. Um, And so, yes, you know, the way that schools um, I hate to get into the weeds of all this because it's really, um, you know, it gets kind of complicated, but we have, there's schools have um, one kind of what they call October count. That's the official count, and it usually happens on October 1st. So that 134 number, that is our official number for the year. So even if we get new students within the school year, it doesn't really change that 134 federal dollars, tax dollars, all of those kinds of things are based on that one number. Now, going into next year, we are about to go into a recruiting season. And yes, we need to recruit more students. And if we can't, it's going to be it's going to be very difficult for us to um, to to sustain to be sustainable um, in the future. And so it is very important for us to recruit new students. You describe these students and, and families as being very passionate about the school and, and keeping it open. What tribes are represented there at the academy? Um, we have, well, in in Denver, we have over 200 tribes uh, represented here. So Denver was one of the, the original, the first four original relocation cities back in the 50s and 60s. And so we have over 200 tribes represented in the Denver metro area due to that. The two biggest tribes are Lakota and Dene, um, and those are the two languages that we offer here. We are the first uh, the first school in Colorado to offer Dene or Navajo as a language, and those are our two um, our two biggest tribes here uh, represented in the school. 
Our school right now is about 59% Native American, which is astounding for the Denver metro area. The majority of our schools here, you are lucky if you have one other Native American student in that school. Um, so our, our students um, here often are the only, if, unless they have siblings that are going to school with them, um, and they often don't know other Native American children or families outside of their own family. And so to have a uh, kind of a base here where, you know, kind of a, a home base for our community to build community and to develop community is a pretty special thing. Terry, I, I know it's tough to, to not only open, but to, to run a charter school, a lot of charter schools down in the Albuquerque area. Uh, many of them don't make it more than a few years. Are, are other Native American charters in similar situations struggling to maintain enrollment? You know, it's really hard to kind of compare because many of our, our many of the charters, other than the Native American Community Academy in Albuquerque, which is an extremely um, successful charter, um, it's hard to compare because many of them are attempting to open or are open in rural areas. Uh, we are, you know, I think NACA has about six six hundred students. Um, we're the next in the NACA Inspired Schools Network. We're the next biggest school at 134. Um, many of many of the native charter schools that we're affiliated with have less than 50 kids or less than 100. Um, so it's it's really hard to compare. And it, you know, being in a in a large urban area um, where there is a lot of competition. Of course, we have you know we have a lot of resources here that rural schools don't. But we also have other you know like the the cost of living, uh, real estate, all of those kinds of things that. We, you know, we have to deal with um, in in a place like Denver that other schools don't. Um, so it, it's it's hard to compare, but it you know it's tough. I mean, it's these are it it takes a lot of money to run a school, and especially when you get into special education, um, multilingual education, all of those all of those requirements, and you know having specialists in the building, school psychologists, uh, social workers, uh, counselors, all of those kinds of things. Um, it, it is extremely expensive and it's hard um, to keep up with it. And do you have a lot of Native faculty members there at the school? We do. Um, and that's one thing that I, both of uh, myself and our, and our principal are both um, from federally recognized tribes. Um, and we have several, of course, we've got a Diné teacher and a Lakota teacher um, as well. And we have a couple of content area teachers that are also from federally recognized tribes. And one of the things that um, makes us somewhat unique, and I know that it's a little bit controversial, but uh, we also recognize our indigenous relatives um, that originate from south of the border. So, um, so we, have, we do have indigenous faculty here, um, and we have a lot of students that are I guess, you know, they're recognized or they identify as being Latino, but they also identify as being indigenous. So you mentioned uh, the recruiting cycle coming up. What is the plan then uh, between now and then to increase these enrollment numbers? Well, we're working, we're really lucky to have some um, really supportive local funders who are not only giving us like money for, for enrollment, we do a lot of digital recruiting, uh, social media is pretty effective for us, especially on Facebook, um, and and that's really just finding those 
those Native and Indigenous families uh, that maybe, you know, maybe they don't live in Denver Public Schools and that school district, uh, those school district boundaries, they may live in other other school districts in the Denver metro area. And then um, we also, uh, they are hiring a, a specialist for us, an enrollment specialist that will be helping us in this next few weeks because school choice uh, opens for Denver Public Schools on January 15th. So unfortunately, the pressure that DPS was putting on us this last eight or nine weeks really um, has hampered our efforts. I mean, we were just gearing up to start our recruitment efforts in October, right after Indigenous Peoples Day. We had a huge event here where we had 500 people in our parking lot. Um, and we, we we had to put all of that on hold while we were dealing with Denver Public Schools. Okay. Well, listeners, if you have a, a question or a comment, today's show, a uh, question about this charter school up in Denver or the pandemic, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. What if someone said you owe money to the IRS and have to pay with a gift card? What if they ask for a gift card so you can avoid arrest, help a family member, or keep your Social Security benefits? No real business or government agency will ever tell you to pay with a gift card. Anyone who does is a scammer. Gift cards are for gifts, not for paying someone. If anyone tells you to pay with a gift card, tell the Federal Trade Commission, the nation's consumer protection agency, at reportfraud.ftc.gov. Support by the Federal Trade Commission. This is the Native America Calling Radio Program. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about Native news topics today because we know these issues are important to you. Earlier, we talked about the current surge in respiratory illnesses and the fate of a new Native charter school in Denver. If you want to comment on these topics, there's still time. We're at 1-800-996-2848. The number again, 1-800-996-2848. Speaking with us now from Los Angeles, California, is Robbie Goldman. He's a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and a National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellow. He is Native Hawaiian. Robbie, welcome back to NAC. Hi, Sean. Great to be on. Well, Robbie, this eruption of Mauna Loa, volcano in Hawaii, hasn't occurred in nearly four decades. That's a long time. I was in high school, I think, when that last erupted. How significant is this? Well, it's pretty significant in terms of eruptions from Mauna Loa within this past century. Um, I was not alive during the last eruption of the volcano, uh, so this is definitely significant for me personally. Um, uh, Mauna Loa Volcano, it's the largest active volcano on Earth. Uh, its volume and height from the base of the seafloor uh, to its summit is actually larger than Mount Everest. Uh, the reason why this particular eruption is significant temporally is because Mauna Loa has only erupted uh, in a period of a few decades at a time uh, since 1950, whereas in the 1800s, it was erupting on an average of three to five years. So the fact that the volcano is experiencing this current eruption now uh, is a great opportunity uh, for volcanologists, um, locals, Native Hawaiians, and tourists to uh, observe this activity. Okay, so uh, any theories as to why uh, it, it used to erupt more frequently and now these eruptions are occurring further and further apart? So this is not something that I'm as well-versed in as some of my uh, volcanology colleagues. Uh, what I do know is that in order for a volcano to experience an eruption, uh, there has to be a sufficient amount of magma uh, beneath the surface, typically within a few miles of the surface, and there needs to be 
a great enough supply of magma uh, from deeper down within the volcano, uh, as well as enough buildup of gas uh, to create enough pressure to push that magma up towards the surface in order for it to erupt. Uh, I can't speak to exactly why the rate has appears to have decreased within this past century, uh, but it, I know it's something that's of great uh, interest to the volcanology community. Well, tell us uh, what's happening right now. How widespread is the lava? Have there been any, any injuries, any homes lost? Yeah, well, thankfully, in contrast to the 2018 eruption of Kilauea volcano, uh, which had uh, significant impacts because there are eruptions in uh, residential areas, the current eruption on Mauna Loa is located far away from any residential area. It's on the northeast rift zone, uh, which is near the uh, saddle region uh, between, or the, the region between that volcano, Mauna Loa, and its neighbor, Mauna Kea. Uh, the only uh, threat that this current eruption poses is the potential for it to flow over Saddle Road, which is a major highway connecting the east and west portions of the Big Island. Unfortunately, uh, since this eruption is occurring uh, at an elevation above 10,000 feet above sea level and is located uh, tens to hundreds of kilometers away from populated areas, uh, no homes or uh, property or people are um, at risk at this time. Robbie, I think for, for people that who are not native Hawaiian and we hear about these eruptions of volcanoes, especially there on the islands, uh, our first response is like, oh my gosh, this is this is horrible. This is a, a catastrophe. This is this is just not a good thing. But eruptions of volcanoes they have special meaning for for native Hawaiians. Uh, can you talk about that? Yes, I can talk about it to a limited extent, only because as someone who is both native Hawaiian but also has not grown up in Hawaii and is not as familiar with uh, aspects of native Hawaiian culture, I don't want to uh, speak beyond what I know, but. I do know that uh, volcanoes uh, play an important role in the formation of the Hawaiian Islands. It's, every eruption creates new land, and that creation of new land from lava flows uh, is a process of birth and recreation. And that's really important to Native Hawaiians, particularly Native Hawaiians who are on the Big Island right now, uh, because of the fact that uh, this time is a period to... Uh, just respect that new uh, growth and activity. So I think there's definitely, there can be misconceptions about uh, the fact that volcanoes do pose risk to property every now and then uh, as being a negative thing, but there's also, a, I think, a much longer history of volcanic eruptions being viewed as an important uh, process to be respectful of and uh, appreciate. Okay. And any estimates right now as to when the lava flows will stop? And then when they do, as the lava cools and hardens, how will it change the landscape there? Yeah. So uh, eruptions from Mauna Loa typically last uh, anywhere from a few weeks to a few months. I can't say when this particular eruption is going to end. Uh, the rate of uh, magma that's erupting at the surface has remained pretty steady. Uh, so, on average, maybe a few more weeks, but that's not an estimate by any means. Um, in terms of how this eruption will affect Mauna Loa uh, once the lava cools, really, it'll just add to the record, the history of these 
um, solidified sheets of uh, basaltic lava. Uh, the current flow is in an aa uh -uh pattern, which means that it's got a more rocky, rough texture, uh, as opposed to pahoehoe, which is a smoother texture. It really it just adds to the overall texture of this particular volcano, uh, and it adds to the uh, 1,000 plus years of lava flows that have covered uh, over half of the um, area, the surface area of Mauna Loa volcano. And, and Robbie, uh, other eruptions in Hawaii right now. This isn't the only one. No, and actually, that's another thing that makes this eruption uh, this time pretty special. Kilauea volcano yeah, currently it has a summit eruption that's been ongoing since the fall of 2021. Uh, this eruption uh, is the next stage in that volcano's history following the major 2018 eruption. Uh, similar to what happened at the start of Mauna Loa's eruption, magma emerged to erupt at the summit uh, within the central summit region of Kilauea, except unlike Mauna Loa, the lava has been continuously erupting uh, from that region in the summit of Kilauea. And so what's really great is that uh, anyone who's on the island or visiting the, the Volcanoes National Park, especially at night, they can see the glow from both of these eruptions, the Kilauea summit eruption and the current uh, northeast uh, fissure eruption on Mauna Loa. And 1984 was the last time that both volcanoes were active just because Kilauea's Pulu'o'o uh, cinder cone was erupting lava at that same time, uh, as opposed to periods within both volcanoes past where the eruptions really haven't coincided or lasted long enough to coincide with one another. Now, I have read reports also that uh, hotels are just packed, and this is a busy time uh, for tourists in Hawaii during these winter months, but yet uh, a lot of locals are booking rooms uh, just out of concern for their safety and um, Wow. So how any insights in terms of how it's going to impact tourism going forward? Yeah, I, I definitely can't speak to how it'll impact tourism going forward, except that it is yet another uh, eruption that uh, creates interest in uh, the dynamic volcanism on the Hawaiian Islands. Uh, in terms of just public safety in general, I think that it's definitely um, always important uh, for us volcanologists and for residents on the island to be aware of how uh, any of these active volcanoes, whether Mauna Loa or Kilauea or others, um, are behaving, uh, checking in with the U.S. Geological Survey through their uh, social media accounts or Facebook, or, or sorry, or their uh, main website, checking in with um, the county government, uh, just to make sure that there aren't any uh, changes that could infect, affect uh, populated regions. So fortunately at this time, uh, there are no indications that either of these eruptions um, are anywhere near uh, uh, a risk right now. But state and community leaders, they are they are taking precautions, they are making preparations. And then uh, with regard to just uh, locals, I mean, do they pretty much just take this in stride, uh, an eruption like this? Are, are people a little more on edge or is it just kind of business as usual, uh, living the Hawaiian lifestyle? So I would definitely uh, defer to my USGS colleagues who have been more involved with the day-to-day -day response. When I visited the island uh, to learn more about the uh, 
aftermath of the 2018 communication response, I think it really depends on who you talk to. Some people uh, tend to be more risk averse, tend to be um, more concerned about the potential effects of these volcanic eruptions. Others, I think, do go more with the flow, as you described, though I don't want to give the impression that uh, anyone is being lackadaisical about this, uh, just that um, living with these volcanoes is just uh, an everyday fact of life, but different people have different levels of experience and awareness of the risks posed by these volcanoes. So Kilauea has been erupting now. These flows have been going on for almost two years. That's just, it's astounding to think that, that they could last that long. And I suppose there's a possibility that Mauna Loa could, these flows could last for a very long period of time. Yeah, that's true. Uh, we don't know how long these flows are going to last. Uh, Kilauea certainly provides a great example of a long-lasting eruption. Uh, the Pu'o'o eruption lasted 35 years, so almost as long as the, the period of rest between Mauna Loa eruptions. Uh, but it's really, yeah, it's, it's hard to know exactly how long these future eruptions are going to occur, but it is, as a volcanologist, I can say it's definitely exciting to see and witness the fact that these eruptions do continue to happen every few years or every few decades even, uh, just because it's a reminder that this is an active island with active volcanoes. Well, we'll certainly be playing, paying close attention here in, in the weeks and, and, and months ahead. And Robbie, we want to thank you for that update regarding uh, these eruptions in Hawaii. Let's go to the phones now. We have Gilbert listening on KSUT in Farmington, New Mexico. Gilbert, thanks for calling in today. Good morning. Good morning, Native America. Um, I called because I was listening earlier on the SARS subject, that severe acute respiratory syndrome. Uh, the COVID-19, um, I was vaccinated and my wife was vaccinated and we ended up getting COVID and uh, she got sick for a couple of days, but not really, not really, really bad. And I got sick also, but in my case, I just had like a little runny nose and uh, for about a day and that was it. Uh, now, I'm just glad that I had my vaccinations. I, I wouldn't want to go through mm -hmm. uh, catching this without my vaccination. I, I Sometimes I go to IHS and they, they keep records of you, you know, and they, whenever you show up, they say, hey, you know, you, you need to do this. You need to do that. So anyway, it's up to date. So, and on a, a, I'm, I'm the man. So uh, Jonathan Nass, our president and our governor, you know, she took a lot of heat for, their policies, but uh, Michelle Lujan Grisham, you know, she, she uh, they pushed the uh, vaccination and stuff like that, and I think they did a good job. But I'm thinking there's a little too much, a little overkill, I'm going to call it, on uh, the procedures, because um, I was saying that, uh, I was listening to the radio, and there's a doctor saying that it's, uh, I guess, to put it away, is okay to catch COVID after you have your vaccination because your immune system needs to take a look at this uh, COVID thing and read it, you know, get information out of it, and it makes your okay. immune system stronger. That was, uh, and I wanted to ask uh, the gentleman, um, you know, being Native Americans, being isolated on this continent, when the non-natives uh, came, uh, they, 
our immune systems were not prepared for what came with them, you know, as far as diseases and respiratory systems and such. Right. So it, I, I think it gives a little credence to what this uh, doctor was saying that I listened okay. to. So I, I want to hear what he would say. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Dean Seneca, uh, please, if you could respond to, to Gilbert's questions yeah. regarding um, the vaccine and, and natural immunity as well and some of those sure. uh, insights. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, our immune systems have never seen uh, the onslaught of diseases that were brought during contact. And slowly, our immune systems had to adjust and develop immunities uh, to a lot of these viruses that were totally foreign to us. Um, but I, I will say, you know, um, uh, with uh, Diné, the Diné community in Navajo Nation, I mean, <clears throat> And I only know this because many Diné colleagues send me the information that, you know, there's been a significant amount of COVID cases uh, within the Diné community. Like, and there's always been very, very high rates. And, um, and there's never really accurate reporting. You know, we had the health department saying something. We had the tribal epicenter saying another thing. And then I really thought the best information was the Navajo Times. Uh, they were pretty accurate. Um, but, you know, um, after you developed, uh, after you received the vaccine and do your boosters, and, and, and I did the same thing, and I've also had COVID, you know, because, you know, the efficiency, uh, efficacy rate is only about 80%, which is still high for a vaccine. But I don't think that um, it's wise for a physician to recommend, okay, you have the vaccine and then to go get the virus. I, I think what they're saying is that if you have the vaccine and you happen to get the virus, your immunity level will be that much stronger. Okay. I think that that's what they're, that's what they're saying uh, in that case. Um, Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, folks, uh, I'm sorry, but this is the end of our hour. We're going to have to leave it at that. And I do want to thank our guests today, Robbie Goldman, Dean Seneca, and Dr. Terry Bissonette for timely updates on pressing news topics. We're back tomorrow with a discussion on the cultural significance of cedar. Until then, I'm Sean Spruce. Stay safe. If you or someone you know is feeling sad, hopeless, or experiencing a mental health or substance use crisis, call, text, or chat 988. 988 is a new three-digit dialing code for 24-7 emotional, mental, or substance misuse support. 988 connects you to free confidential support. You are not alone in a crisis. Just call, text, or chat 988. For more information, visit 988.nm.org. This month and every month, remember, one in three Native American adults have high blood pressure. Check it at your nearest community health center. If the numbers are above 120 over 80, talk to a healthcare professional. Native community well-being is very important. You can take action by visiting heart.org slash HBP control. This support provided in partnership with HHS slash OMH and HRSA under cooperative agreements CPIMP 211227 and CPIMP 211228. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. 
Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.